there's a social culture that we need to work on everywhere within this country. We have a sense of community. And as long as you have a real community, then you got other people that, that have your back. You want to see your community win. Like you want to see it grow and flourish like a beautiful garden. One of the traditions of Carry On is to let women speak first. And once the tradition happens, then the culture will fall in place. When you see women around, you give them the voice. When you see children around, you give them the voice. That spirit of wanting to see people win is so beautiful. As you listen today, please let my guest conjure in your mind a mature and humble society as he shares what he calls a new social contract. Also, in our show notes, you can find both a recent image of Jai's artwork and the PDF of a ballot measure Jai co-wrote called the Elijah McLean Accountability Act. Thank you. Welcome to Angel City Culture Quest, where art, social justice, and the environment meet in Los Angeles. I am your host, Melina Paris, and I welcome you to this episode. Hello, and welcome to Angel City Culture Quest. Today, we're speaking to artist and activist and my friend, Jai Hudson. Hi, Jai. Hi. How are you doing today? I am doing fine. How is your world? Good, good. Thank you. So you can get to know Jai a little bit better, I'm going to mention a few of Jai's accomplishments before we start. Jai was involved in studying philosophy under Professor Grimes at the Noetic Society in Huntington Beach. He helped with Occupy Long Beach, Occupy LA, and Irvine and he helped establish Black Lives Matter in Long Beach. Jai was the creative director for Community Consciousness. He made an art collective called Of Royalty. He made an anti-racist movement called Carry On. And just last year, during the pandemic, Jai traveled the United States with the Hoop Bus, pushing a new social contract for this nation. Currently, Jai is working on a new designer brand called Made of Blessings. Jai said of royalty was for liberation, carry on was for hope and change, Made of Blessings is for a transition into a spiritual healing. Most recently, Jai co-wrote the Elijah McLean bill, and we're going to start there. Now, Elijah McLean is a bill that you co-wrote. Is that correct, Jai? Correct. Okay. And on August 23rd, it passed its application process, and the California Attorney General's office is making a summary, and then it has to pass legislation. Mm -hmm. This actually started off being called the George Floyd bill, right? Right. And uh, we, we went into a different direction to bring recognition towards somebody that we felt was being overlooked, but was at the heart of, uh, I know me, so if it hit me the way it did, I was thinking that it hit other people the way it did. It brought some attention to it, and many other people have participated to bring attention to it. So in Colorado, it helped to bring justice towards his unfortunate demise. Right. It's an important bill. And just to recall, 
Elijah McLean was a 23-year-old black man who died in 2019 after the police in Aurora, Colorado, restrained him with a chokehold. And that particular chokehold has since been banned. After his death, a Colorado grand jury indicted three police officers and two paramedics on charges including manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide. When medical responders arrived to the scene, after about 15 minutes, the paramedics injected him with the sedative ketamine, and Elijah unfortunately went into cardiac arrest on the way to the hospital and died a few days later. Now, I just want to mention a side note. This relates to a recent development in Long Beach, where it's been reported that the fire department paramedics have recently begun helping police subdue people they believe are potentially violent or combative, sometimes by administering a powerful sedative to that person being detained. So this relates to the same drug that they gave Elijah. Right. This was upsetting to hear this news. Right. But I want to mention what your bill addresses. It addresses body cams, and in those terms, the bill cites that missing body cam footage would be legally interpreted by courts and investigators as police misconduct. Yep. The bill calls on the police to intervene in another officer's use of excessive force. It ends qualified immunity. It addresses chokeholds. It addresses reporting investigation of police misconduct. And it even addresses police unions, which you said you hope you can figure out how to keep that in there because it's a very hard thing in terms of how it influences politics. Right. Constitutionally, it's a a very hard thing to address. It is definitely the hardest one to keep within the law, but it gets really close to addressing the problem of the police unions influencing our politics. And, you know, they, they get their budget swelling so easily through that. And the budget goes through weaponry, military grade. And I I hope that if we figure out how to include that, we could keep it so that we, the people, are the ones that guide this budget in a way that it isn't so overwhelmingly into the police and maybe into mental health facilities or, you know, direct that money in different places. They could use the budget that they have differently not to make another military within our society, another occupying force. Exactly right. That would be a dramatic and wonderful change to see happen. Yeah, I think that I really do have a lot of faith and hope in in the pressure that the people have applied and the mutual interests that, that have came along. So I believe that we're headed in the right direction. It's hard, for sure, and everybody's stressed out, but we're getting there. Yeah, it's hard work, that's for sure. But you also noted SB2 has recently passed. Right. That's, I mean, that's helping us out already. So, And there's another bill, too. I, I forget what the other one's called, but it was about the force used from the police that um, we had to relate to. These are changes that we need to see happen, so we'll keep our eyes on this bill. Do you have any timeline for when it might come up for legislation? Well, at the end of September is when we're supposed to finish the summary of what the bill is and when it will be submitted. About September 27th, I think, is is when we're supposed to be finished. There's multiple bills, somewhat like what we're doing. And uh, we want to cover the ground that hasn't been covered yet. So there's things that are going to be taken out for what we have already applied or what has already passed. 
we don't want to take the rest of this time that we have and miss out on our, on our opportunity to just fill the rest of the gap from what our ancestors did is finish it, finish the whole civil rights movement, finish this social contract route, make a new one. Don't just keep amending things. It's a different society that we live in today, and we have to work on including the other people, I guess. I guess we're other people now, huh? Yeah. <laughs> all people, all people, please. Yeah. yeah. It's true. And it is hard work. But let's switch course a little bit. I want to go into a little bit of your background. So you grew up in Orange County, and you're doing a lot of activist work there. So first, I'm wondering if you can describe your childhood recollections of Huntington Beach and how it was growing up as a black child there for you. Well, when you grow up in Huntington Beach, you grow up with very few people that look like you, well, if you look like me. So there's maybe like two or three people that did look like me at my elementary school. I guess because the teachers aren't accustomed to seeing people that look like me, they like to ask me if my friend is my twin, that's my twin brother. And I'd be wow. like, he doesn't look nothing like me. <laughs> like, he's just wow. black. So you get questions like that. You don't really feel different. You just, you're treated different, but you don't really feel that way until it's uh, beaten into you. So we are uh, like walking to school. They, it it was fun until they show you the you know the hatred. They used to tag things up on my wall, like telling me to go home, go back to Africa, and stuff like that. But I was a shy kid, you know. I, I was the kid that would go into school and and hide underneath my mama's dress. That school, the teachers that wanted to take me out of my shell, you know, they put me as a narrator to a play. That helped me get in front of people and speak with ease and comfort. As we went into like fifth grade, the, the teacher recognized my issue and she addressed it by doing things like playing Amistad and bringing my dad in. And then everybody fell in love with my dad. He showed them music and he said, they, they're like, wow, that's really cool. To be a child there with my two sisters, it was a cultural awakening. People will use the media to try to define who you should be. And then they figure out later on that they had no idea what they were talking about and didn't give you the chance to live. And once they let go of the of the media's perception of who you should be, then things were cool. Then then we had fun. You know, they realized that we're not so different. We're, we're in this uh, society together, even though I am treated differently from the state. That's a good observation, you know, when people stop listening to what they're being told and just deal with the people at face value. When they evaluate your blackness, that's the weirdest thing about growing up in a, in a, in a white environment is to, like, put a, a scale rating on your blackness. <laughs> you're like, you're, you're not that black, or he's not that black, or she's not that black, or she is really black. Like, what are you talking about? Oh, my like, goodness. You know, like that, that whole conversation and it, a weak minded person gets into an identity crisis with a comment like that. There's someone that's comfortable in their skin and actually they've been around. Cause my dad took me everywhere. I've seen all different kinds of people that look just like me, you know, and they talk different. They look different. They act different. Some got a lot of energy. Some got less. Some are more joyful. Some are angry, you know? Right. <laughs> and I'm like, well, just, you know, hang out with me, hang out with me on the weekend and you tell me about uh, what your definition is. Right, exactly. Get to know me. That's great. 
So from what I've seen on your Carry On page on Facebook, you've said in different ways that you're trying to make positive changes in your hometown for greater tolerance and understanding among people and for black people. Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah, I have a nephew and I, I got two stepsons. And um, I want to make sure that the type of harassment that I got, they will have the least amount of, you know, if any, you know, I hope that, that the work that many hundreds of people have done within the city now is going to make it a comfortable place to exist with each other. Because when you, when you hung out with me or somebody like me, then you started witnessing the different treatment. And if you did that and you actually like loved me or the person like me, then you want that thing to change. And uh, the same way that when you become a, a, a parent, you start to walk different, talk different, set a different standard of, of being a, a role model. You're a role model to these kids, but I want to make sure that they could walk through the garden with a clear path. You know, hopefully they could see the snakes before they come. And hopefully something deals with those snakes before they get to the children. Exactly. So kind of giving them tools, too. Right, right. Um, if we could just supply them with the proper tools that we didn't learn from far off in our lives, then I'll be a happy person. Yeah. Now, can you speak to seeing some of those effects within Huntington Beach? I mean, as far as positive changes, have you seen any? Oh, yeah. Most definitely. They, I've seen them from the level of like city council towards, you know, like they try to exploit democracy by putting a celebrity within our uh, city council. And uh, it worked for a little bit for them. But and then there was a whole intimidation factor that they tried to apply. Eventually that the celebrity got out and they replaced that person with a black woman. And I, I was like, wow, from the mistreatment of my childhood to seeing that and to see like support from, you know, the, the European community, the white community. It's nice to see, like, that's so overwhelmingly, it hit me emotionally. Like, when I, I stood out in front of city council speaking, and I saw I saw a sea of white people in support of me, and that was when I was like, I had a problem with Chuck Liddell. But, like, I cried when, when I seen all that support. So what I'm saying is, like, not only is it city council that, that has changed, but the treatment of the community is changing. It's becoming more welcoming, it's becoming less judgmental, and the, the prejudice is falling away. Like, I walked into bars, like, where I was like, ah, oh, that guy is here, ah. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> but he must be a bad bar. <laughs> wow. So, and then I, I, move I on. you know, yeah, and then now, now I go in there, and it's like, bright, shiny faces, and like, people are either talking to me or minding their business, and it, I like that vibe. The, the prejudice vibe does not, it seems to be lowering. I'll say that much. I'm not foolish enough to say those undertones have disappeared, but I know that because we confronted it so hard over the summer of uh, 2020 that it's thought about twice. You know, there was a time out here in, in Huntington Beach where one of the city council members, they said, you know, Huntington Beach isn't a racist place. And then you have hundreds of people that showed up at City Hall like, nah, you're going to have to face what the undertone culture is and why there's such a small amount of uh, Black faces out here, you know, high melanated people. Exactly. Well, that's good to hear, though. It's progress. Hopefully the community will grow more diverse, too. Around my little block, that's the most beautiful thing. I walk around kind of proud about the amount of people like I've noticed 
you know, you'll have more black people coming out here smoking cigarettes or like talking on the telephone outside because they feel comfortable from what happened all the way down on Main Street to like Sunset Beach, which is the opposite side. That says a lot. You mentioned about the summer and all the protests. I want to have you talk about the evolution of the movement that you initiated, Carry On. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what's been going on with that movement? Yeah, I started Carry On a while, but it felt like only me. And uh, I weighed out how to make a tradition and turn that tradition into a culture. So it moved on from um, me just writing certain type of statements and figuring out how to make a, a more inclusive thing into running symposiums at protests. Eventually, somebody blessed me. This guy, Zug, he, he runs the shirt business. He blessed me with a bunch of shirts to run around um, the nation with. And uh it became kind of like an icebreaker to, to spread these shirts around. So everybody got the word carry on into it. And they, they like the phrase. They're like, this is what it means. They break down to what it means. But I got to reach out to other movements, other grassroots movements. And I got to, you know, support them and, and amplify their message. And then I even went out to the Kumaye people out there in, you know, what they call San Diego. And uh, I spoke up for them. The difficult thing about speaking up for the Kumaye people is that First Nation Indigenous people seem to have the same conflict that, that African American people have when it comes to trusting other people to help out with your movement. So, you know, they trusted me. I also have a thing where if you're going to make real change, you want to have critical mass. So that right. to bring critical mass into a place where you're the only one trusted is really hard. You can only bring you and your voice. So when, as Carry On went, and uh, it went from each type of issue, even the Palestinians, and it, it, it made symposiums to be honest, a, a safe space to be honest about your ignorance and to come to a conclusion where you actually learn about the issue at hand. Like if if we had it today where we went to um, a symposium about abortion, I'd be like, as a man, I don't know anything about abortion. But Carry On became like a, a great tradition to hold that space where I'll learn not only about that abortion, but like how women feel right now. And for me to be honest about my ignorance until I get how something like that affects a woman because one of the traditions of carry on is to let women speak first because there will be in a lot of environments where men take an overwhelming position on decision making. I'm glad you mentioned that because I remember you talking about that before last, well I guess it was spring summer before you actually went on tour around the country. Right. It was at the Huntington Beach rally, and you were explaining the symposiums to me and what happened, and you discussed about letting women and children speak first. Mm -hmm. I think that's important, and it shows humbleness, and I think we all can grow from learning a little bit more about that. Yeah, because it, it's nasty out there. The women that had the courage to go out there, like my friend Brittany, when she went out there and she engaged in these conversations, and then as articulate as she is, when you see these men come at them, it reminded me of when I was a child, when I had no muscle, on how scary the men would act to me to get their point across, where they didn't have to use any intellectual capacity to articulate their argument or to reason with you. And I see them treating grown women like that. I do my best to use my privileges 
to let them be heard. But it shouldn't be necessary for me to be that person. Right. Not in a mature, humble society, at least. Exactly. I was just at this one where the guy, like, he wanted to fight. And then he wanted to fight me. Oh, I was no. like, first of all, you're going so hard at that lady. You're like, you need to chill out. And then we could we could have a conversation about your questions. Or you could stand on a soapbox somewhere else. <laughs> De-escalate. Wow. You're gaining so many <laughs> skills with this. They can carry on, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. <laughs> carry on. <laughs> exactly. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking to artist and activist Jai Hudson. Thank you for listening. I want to mention your list of influences, an impressive list of thinkers and philosophers. It includes Dr. Cornell West, poet Langston Hughes, mm-hmm. Mumia Abu-Jamal, Alan Watts, and James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Now, we talked a little bit about it, your three-month trip around the country with the hoop bus pushing a new social contract for this nation. Can you describe succinctly what that contract entailed? It's to acknowledge the two sins of America, the mass murder, genocide of the First Nation indigenous people, and then uh, slavery, and what it means to beat the humanity out of a people and not respect the resilience to survive and acknowledge what they came from. It's hard to see it if you don't put the links together. Like skipping from slavery to here is hard to see on how a people are treated. And that's why we say, you know, an anti-Black community. Because when you got an anti-Black community, you got state violence. You got people that don't respect each other. You have mass incarceration. You have less opportunity towards resources to better yourself, to grow, whether it be um, economically or spiritually. You know, you get away from a natural way of life because of, I don't know, food desert. So what we do is we build that way of talking towards each other. And when it gets back towards being honest about your ignorance, when we go out there and build with each other, we have a sense of community. And as long as you have a real community, then you got other people that, that have your back, especially in dire situations. So like when I speak up on stage, I usually will... I, well, first of all, I speak behind a woman or, you know, a girl, if I could, any of them like that, that are not shy to grab the mic, I do that. I speak, and then I usually find a kid that's enthusiastic or like, seems like they have, you know, the courage, the spirit in them. And I I bring them up on stage and I tell them, you know, I ask them if they're a person of this community and if they had something to say. And I tell that community, you know, look out for this person, because usually I'm on a block, like I'm on a block speaking. And I, I hope that when I leave, that that, that new social contract has a, a tradition that I set on stage. When you're in a group of people, they got, you know, women around, and then you give them the voice. When you see those children around, you give them the voice. And once the tradition happens, then the culture will fall in place bringing art into the equation because that already stimulates the mind and hopefully we permeate the memory there it happens you 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 see it happen like if you go down like uh lamarck park 
and you you walk around out there and you see uh, in LA you see like poetry on the walls and you see artwork on the walls that's culture right there there's a social culture that we need to work on everywhere within this country I went everywhere I mean there's like very few places that I didn't hit and it's all like <laughs> this is an interesting nation I'll say that much <laughs> I had a guy that pulled up on me on the gas station. He said, you look like you're far away from home. I said, home is where I make it, man. And then he left me alone. But I was like, what, what goes on in your mind to tell somebody that they look like they're far away from home? That is odd. That is very odd. How did the hoops bus figure into this? You know, was it the Freedom Riders? That, was that the bus that, that went around and did that? They were inspired by that. Yes. My friend Nico heard me speak in Compton, and he was like, you don't speak like anybody else. And uh, it, was, it was really nice. It was actually like a very spiritual speech. There was a guy on his knees with his hands out, like praising to God when I was speaking. i never seen that before. When he caught that speech, so he was like, you know, you should come around with us, and I'm going to DJ. He does this uh, band called RB. And he said that he's going to DJ, and then, you know, he'll pass me the mic. I do my, I spread my message. You know, I give a shout out to our beats and uh, the hoop bus and we keep it, we keep it moving. And the hoop bus was effective because what they did is they attracted the crowd through basketball, you know, so every community we hit, we brought the game of basketball to them. And some of those communities, we painted the courts. Nice. You know, we gave, gave them hoops too, I think. That's nice. So going back to the influences, you said Mumia Abu-Jamal is one of the figures who has influenced you. And like I said, it connects to your road trip around the country. Right. For background, Mumia was a political activist and journalist. You noted that he wrote about police brutality for the Black Panthers. And it's worth mentioning, you're 35 years old, and you noted that they've locked him up for your entire life. Mm -hmm. Mumia was convicted of murder and sentenced to death in 1982 for the 1981 murder of Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner. However, there is a large free Mumia movement demanding a new trial for him, which emerged in the early 90s. And this movement brought widespread public attention to the case. Mumia's supporters also included a variety of intellectuals, civil rights leaders, and entertainers, both here and abroad. Now, can you talk about, A, when you met Mumia's nephew, and what you realized about the younger generation? And B, what was it that initiated that trip in the first place, and anything that you might have learned from it? Yeah. I went to Philadelphia. I don't believe I went to Philadelphia with the hoop bus. And I, I think that was after August 28th. After August 28th, I split from the hoop bus and continued on my own. Uh, with like people that actually, people like I picked up on my journey. Like oh, wow. that, that was the beautiful thing about the movement is that I made friends, like-minded people along my journey. And they still stick in, they still in contact with me today. That's great. His nephew was keeping in contact with me over Instagram. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go hit Philadelphia and meet you. And we were at a socialist march. Philadelphia has the whole game plan perfectly. Like what they're talking about is that will be a better United States if they are in the lead. Uh, I really believe that. 
So I went around and uh, I saw how their police operate. And um, he gave me a, a history lesson on uh, Philadelphia, Mumia's nephew. And uh, what did he say? He was talking to me about the first White House and he was showing me the old buildings. And then he was giving me a, a, a different perspective on the issue at hand while everybody else was chanting. So it was the first time I was having like a dialogue that felt like a symposium with only one person, but it showed me a lot of, you know, new ropes of the game of, of, of what is uh, our social issues and how there, there could be a seed from a individual that was powerful enough to influence me and to show the next generation how to carry on that tradition into like a new version of the struggle. So when I was walking around with him, it felt like Mumia was free out of prison, like he was walking right there with me. And I was so happy with that situation. And um, it became a like a normal thing. So I, I don't know how to say that I appreciate that moment just as much as I appreciate being my, uh, my grandparents. You know, the wisdom came through both people because I got to see my grandparents, too, like in, in New York. There was just unexpected jewels of that trip. You had said you realized the younger generation is really stepping up into a mature approach toward change. Yeah, it, it, it became our time to address the issue. Our elders took their time on teaching us. We're not supposed to be the students anymore. In martial arts, there's a black belt and a white belt. The black belt helps teach the white belt. So it was now time for the new black belts to teach the white belt. They stepped into their role. I'm really proud of uh, how this generation is moving. Not even exactly my generation. Like, like the, the ones that are a little bit younger than me are, are doing a better job. A lot of people my age, like, <laughs> I'm more disappointed in, in my age of people than the younger ones. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the Noetic Society, and you were much younger then, speaking of a younger generation. When you studied philosophy from, it was about maybe 2008 to 2012 under Professor Pierre Grimes at Holden West College mm -hmm. in Huntington Beach. You said Grimes runs a philosophical club, which is called the Noetic Society, and he authored a book called Philosophical Midwifery. It's mm -hmm. a very interesting title, by the way. Right. And you guys studied Plato's dialogues in part. And about this experience, that you said that you loved studying what beauty is and the philosophy of ethics. Can you talk about the influence philosophy has had on your activism work and how it helped you get on the right track? Yeah. Well, I guess that would mean that I'd have to talk about how I got on the wrong track. And that, that was um, when you, the people that are treated like you within, um, I know that in, in Orange County, and I think around the whole nation, is that you're broken down into classes. So when you're from a different class, like I would say that I'm in the bottom of the middle class and my friends were really in poverty. You know, I was like wavering in and out of that mainly because my parents were divorced and, the, you know, they would rather struggle than get along. That's the people that the police target. So I caught a felony at a very young age that took on half of my adult life. I want to read something to you. It might jog your memory. You're talking about philosophy. 
You said it helped me get on the right track about what I'm really working towards. I like working for the people, but then you have to work hard on yourself afterwards. It gets traumatic. Right. At that point in time, when I, when I did catch that felony, I had to make sure that I could get back onto the right path. My stepmom reached out to Dr. Cornell West and was like, what does he do? Like He caught a felony, can't get a job. And uh, that's what put me onto philosophy. So philosophy of ethics. You spend time thinking about what's right or wrong. That's what they try to do with jail. They put you on timeout. Then you go out and you're like, oh, I'm better in my life. But you're still poor, you know? Like yeah. when, you're, you're, when you're poor, you're poor. Like that's really the different standards of how people are treated and targeted is, is what class are they from? So that's why people have to go over the philosophy of ethics to see that they're morally bankrupt in a different bank account. <laughs> yeah, you also said that the whole philosophical dialogue influenced your work because you start to see that there's a righteous way of doing things. Right, and I'm saying there's a way to reason, there's a way to go over what you what you did. How do you say that? Well, I don't know how to how to say that in the in the best way possible, but I do know that when you go over the book of the cave in Plato, where they reach down and they have the movies going on and people's heads are connected to like this chain and they can't turn around. They're looking at the wall. And while they look at the wall, they see the shadow puppets behind them. And the person behind that is the person projecting the image. So those people in the front of the cave, in the very bottom of the cave, are the people that are saying that they, that's what, that's what their reality is. Until somebody can escape from that chain and go back up out of the cave, and then they see the sun. And they see not only the sun, but the journey of getting out of that cave. They see the tricks that are being played on the other people that are chained up. So the person that goes up to see the light and sees the beauty of the world when they get out of the cave, they're at their best when they go back into the cave and create a positive effect of, of freedom and help out the next person to get out of the cave and see that light. And then that next person goes down. So is, if each one of us lives a life like that, right when we grow, that's when you really learn beauty. That's when you really learn how, how to live. That's really that's how you learn how to die. And that right there is, I believe, the key to life. That's beautiful. And it reminds me of a painting. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. It's the picture of a black man's arm reaching down to help another black man's arm who's reaching up. But that's the, that's the spirit, though. That's the exact spirit. The spirit is the opposite of a crab in a bucket. The spirit is the, like, is of carry on as a tradition is to want to see other people win. Unless you're in, like, a sport competition and you're on this team and they're on that team, you know, you want to see you win and your teammates. In the community where it's so easy to drag each other down and play a hierarchy type of game, you want to see your community win. Like you want to see it, it grow and flourish like a beautiful garden. Like give that nutrition to the soil. That spirit of wanting to see people win is so beautiful. That's right. Now, getting back to your activism for a minute, and then we're going to talk about your art. I want to talk about the so-called meaning of the thin blue line in relation to something that you said and to be clear on what you expressed. First, the phrase thin blue line is said to represent the idea that law enforcement associated with the blue uniforms acts as the barrier or line between the community they protect and lawlessness. Now, 
when you first joined Occupy Long Beach and then you went to Occupy Los Angeles, you said that you had realized what was wrong. It was the police and what they call the thin blue line. It keeps us, meaning activists, I believe, mm-hmm. away from doing certain things or bringing change quick enough, and that they, the police, I believe, mm-hmm. halt us in real everyday life. Well, I definitely mean that they are the barrier that, that keeps us from progress. And if they have a union that gets to create their progress, then the people deserve a union, too, to create their progress. And our progress comes from um, protests. Whenever the government is doing wrong or they feel like the people feel like they are tyrants, we're supposed to be entitled to change that government. It's written in the Bill of Rights. If that's the case, then when people were talking about a society, then we should be able to address that society. We should be able to even address the police, you know, and that's what we were doing. We were were addressing state violence and they happen to be the opposition. And opposition is good within a protest because within that protest, you get the attention that is needed to recreate more critical mass. You can't run a symposium with the police. Now, switching gears a little bit, you worked as creative director for community consciousness in 2019, and in part, you went to elementary and middle schools in Orange County and made garden beds to teach the students how to grow their own food. And you also did art for the people. Can you explain that a little bit for us, what you did? That's the beautiful part of my life. If life is worth good memories, community consciousness is a very beautiful part of my life where I spent many days and hours in, in, in gardens. That's what I mean, getting closer to nature, is when you develop like that. From the ground up, you created food or whatever you're going to use these plants for, teas, medicine, and you also teach the children and pick up wisdom from the elders. We went around to schools, and we created beds for the children and for the teachers to take care of. You know, it's not not every child wants to sit inside during a sunny day. Like, I don't want to sit inside during a sunny day. I'm an adult. And they appreciate it, too. We walk through these schools and bless them. And then we go back to our community gardens or our gardens at home. And then within that time of us creating these gardens, we made art for the people. People like my friend Nicole, Karina, uh, Natalie, Sabine, uh, Ramar, Uh, Ian, many other people. When we created these gardens, we also created the Art for the People show. That brought together community, but it also fed the people from what we made in the garden. Like all the food there was, was harvested from what we made and the people enjoyed it. It showed people that, you know, we could survive on what we make. Not everything has to be manufactured. Being around each other at the garden it was a beautiful thing when we worked together. That's what community really looked like. My hardest thing is meetings. Like, I'm honestly not even good at this whole little Zoom world. It's away from who I naturally am. It's kind of hard for me, but I do believe that there's a message of, of healing that's worth getting across, and that's why I, I'll sit behind the screen. What you have to say is important, and people need to hear it, and I love the message you're bringing. Now let's get yeah. to your art. 
you started of Royalty Art Collective, and now you're in transition to Made of Blessings, also an art collective, uh, but you said it represents a personal and spiritual evolution for you. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that evolution, but also why you chose the two great subjects to paint that you did, Dave Chappelle and Questlove? When I started of Royalty, it was on the liberation where you didn't want to be labeled by what the state wants to call you. Like whether they want to call you a, a criminal or a, a future criminal. <laughs> like, but you want to walk with the posture of royalty to treat other people from, from a step higher than that would be to treat people as if they are an entity that's connected to God. So when you, when you treat that person as if they are a God too, you're getting to treat humanity as if they are precious, as if they are valuable. So the people that I chose to draw, uh, to paint, are people like Dave Chappelle, people like Questlove. And it's not always people. It's sometimes plants or animals and, and environments, things to appreciate and get your tranquility on. You know, Questlove, I believe, he adapted to the pandemic, which brought a lot of trauma and stress onto people even enough to, to have them dying of panic attacks and severe uh, depression, relationships uh, ended over what happened during this pandemic. But Quest Love was like, you know what, what I'm going to do is create this DJ show where at one point he was playing whatever he wanted and then giving you the education. And he's a person that I studied for creativity purposes. He has a book about creativity. He has a way of dealing with boredom that, that I appreciate. And it's just, you know, uh, as simple as using boredom as if that's the opportunity to bring something out of silence. I like how he adjusted during the pandemic so much that I painted him. <laughs> and then Dave Chappelle was somebody that I admired because he didn't sacrifice his integrity to get his message across. And within his art he's unapologetic you know there's yeah. un there's people that don't apologize but like they should have apologized he's right. like nah you, you guys might have missed the point of, of who i am and i really appreciate that he grows he reinvents himself into a better version of himself constantly i think we have enough discouraged people and people that they give up or they give in. But when you see somebody with the integrity like Dave Chappelle, I believe that you find value in life. You see why it's important for you to live on, for you to find your joy again, to live with integrity. Exactly. Which leads me to Made of Blessings. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You can see the essence of God within somebody else. It brings a healing and it brings a sense of less hostile communication when you see that within somebody else. So I really believe that right now is a time for psychologists, therapists, you know, like that, that type of vibe. Like we need to bring a healing in, in a different fashion. And for me, art is my therapy, just like maybe um, watching Bob Ross. So mellow, so cool. I'm sure he went through his trauma as a, I think he was from the military, but you see a canvas, a blank canvas, and to create a world within that canvas is like another rebirth. Me, I have conversations with my artwork. I'm like, I am so frustrated with you right now, and you really need to develop into something beautiful, 
sometime soon because people are hauling at me. They're like, where's the next piece at? So we, we have a whole conversation. And um, by the end of it, it really is the greatest dialogue that I have in life is when I when I look at that painting completed. It gets to a point and you are, you are dancing to it in the form of enjoying your, your life, enjoying the journey of rebalancing yourself. So made of blessings was, it's a play on words too. Like it's a, it's a play on an acronym MOB because at my time MOB was a gang thing. I want to guide the gangsters into like a, a, a realm that's more spiritual, like where they, where they walk in a different light. When I listen to them, they want it. There are some tough people out there that have no problem with that because they deal with a lot of death. They deal with a lot of trauma. It's like walking around with a broken heart, but you're lying to yourself on healing it. And you, you're lying to the world on, on how hurt you are because you're supposed to hold yourself in a certain light. So MOB, made of blessings, has transformed into a spiritual thing where we could address the healing process. Just hearing you talk about that and describe elevates me. Just hearing your words describe that. That's wonderful work. Now, if people want to see some of your artwork, can you tell people where to find you? Yeah, soon, madeofblessings.com will, will be up and finished. For right now, you could go on to Made of Blessings on Instagram, and then you can see when there will be an art show, and you can come to it live. We got the Carry On group is is on Facebook. You know, ask to be invited into that. That is about, you know, the social contract. But Made of Blessings will be a website up soon. Upworldty.com is up right now, and that's where you can get your shirt. That is to stimulate a culture that walks around with art on their shirt. That's the fashion. Beautiful thing. <laughs> Decorating space. Yeah. Jai Hudson, thank you very much. I really appreciate all your words. I appreciate your time, too. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.